Thank you very much, Rita. Our growing relationship with Connect, like that with the Council of Churches of Greater Bridgeport, a key way in which we reach out to the world. Uh, we are stronger together as we seek to serve the world in God's on God's behalf. We do so so much more effectively uh, when we do it with our brothers and sisters uh, in the wider community. So thank you for taking the lead on building this new and important relationship with Connect. Uh, this morning, I want to share with you uh, a story and Jesus' um, explanation of a parable that comes from the 13th chapter of Matthew. Uh, last week, the parable of uh, sowing the seeds, some on fertile ground, others on uh, dry ground, the path, and in the midst of the weeds. Um, and today, another parable about sowing seeds. This one's a little different about weeds and how it grows with wheat. Um, right after this parable, Jesus uh, tells another one about the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, he said, but which when planted grows into a bush that is greater than any bush. And he tells the parable about the uh, woman taking yeast and adding it to uh, flour, and so the flour uh, begins to grow, and it grows and expands and becomes bread. So the littlest thing can become the greatest and indeed most nourishing thing. But this morning, let's look at the parable of the farmer who goes out uh, to sow his seeds and what happens. Jesus put forward to them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone, a farmer, who sowed good seeds in a field. Parables are stories that Jesus tells for which the meaning is not always necessarily immediately apparent. What's this all about? Uh, sometimes we think that Jesus taught in parables so that everything would become perfectly clear but as he says it a number of times, no, he tells parables so we won't get it immediately, but we'll have to struggle with the meaning. And perhaps over time, as we search for meetings, we'll discover new understandings, uh, particularly across our lifespan. So the farmer went out to sow, and he sowed good seed. The good seed, that's an important part of the parable. But then, while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. Brambles or uh, dandelions, who knows what else, weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants began to come up and to bear grain, the weeds appeared as well in the field. And so the servants, the workers on the fields, came to the householder and they said, Master, did you not sow good seed? Where then did all these weeds come from? This is a big part of gardening, right? He's taking care of the weeds. Where did these weeds come from? And Jesus answered, mm, or rather the man answered, oh, an enemy must have done this. And they said, well then, do you want us to go out and to pull up the weeds? 
And the farmer replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. So let them, both of them, grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. From here it goes on to tell the parable of the mustard seed and then the, the parable of the, of the yeast. So before we move on to Jesus' further thoughts on the meaning of this parable, let me share with you a few thoughts on this particular point. One of my professors used to say that Jesus taught in parables that were fit to his time when uh, people lived uh, paycheck to paycheck, day laborers, those who didn't know where the next meal or the next rent check or the next mortgage payment would be coming. He spoke to people who felt hard pressed financially. He also spoke to people who lived on the land. They were agriculturalists. Uh, they didn't have desk jobs. They didn't work in uh, big corporations or in systems. They weren't uh, scientists working in a lab. They were people who lived right in the land, sometimes many of them literally sleeping under the stars for lack of a home. And he said, we ought to go out, my professor said, we ought to go out and write new parables, parables about uh, megabytes, parables about platforms and software and hardware, uh, parables about mapping the human genome, systems theory. Well, I don't have any of those because I think the parables of Jesus do really well because we all know a little bit of farming, not much. There aren't many professional farmers among us anymore, a few. Um, but we all know what it means to plant a seed and see it grow. Now, one little thing. Do you know where everything in that plant comes from when the seed sprouts up out of the world, out of the earth, right? And then you water it and fertilize it. It grows, gathers nutrients from the ground. And, um, but all, all that growth, this little sprout that becomes a tall plant, where did all the material, all the matter, all the cells in the plant come from? Did they come out of the ground? No, because there's not a hole in the ground. All those nutrients, all the all the cells, the fiber, the fruit, all comes from the air. The plant takes all of the elements and the nutrients and the minerals and everything in the air and through the miracle of photosynthesis transforms it into a plant. Okay, so we have these parables of agriculture. And we can all understand this uh, need uh, to separate the wheat from the chaff or the weeds from the wheat, right? It's a funny parable, isn't it? Because usually the rule of thumb in gardening is to get rid of the weeds as soon as you can so that the good fruit, the wheat or the, the corn or the tomatoes, whatever they are, they can grow without the weeds competing against them for the nutrients, both from the ground and uh, from the air. But this time, the farmer says, no, just let them be and separate them at the end of time. Jesus and his friends and those who followed him in his earliest days thought that they lived in a time when everything was going to come to a crash, a crashing, tumultuous end. They felt hard-pressed. They saw enemies 
um, all around them. They were afraid um, of the forces that were arrayed against them. And so it has a, sometimes an extreme view is expressed by Jesus about what will happen to those who aren't uh, following Jesus. Very understandable given the circumstances. So the disciples didn't quite understand the parable. So later on in the gospel, it says in verse 36, and then Jesus left the crowds and went away into a house. And his disciples came to him and they said, uh, explain to us, please, the parable of the weeds of the field. They were confused, didn't seem to make any sense to them. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's how Jesus refers to himself, particularly in Matthew and Mark. The one who sows the seed, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. So he teaches about this as though it's an allegory. This means that. And the enemy who sowed the weeds, the children of the evil one, come from the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with a fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and of evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where they will be, where there, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun, in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone who hears, listen. It's one of Jesus' favorite phrases. If anyone who has ears, let them listen. Let them hear. Anyone whose eyes, let them see. So this is a pretty extreme view. And it implies that uh, the end is right around the corner. But I think there's another way of thinking about this parable, and that's about our own inner lives. I think the seeds that are sown by the Son of Man land in the fields which are our hearts and minds and lives, our souls, our persons, who I am, who you are. And sometimes there are a lot of weeds in the field of my life and Jesus is saying, you know, we have to take care of those in some kind of way. We have to develop in a different way. Otherwise, the weeds will overtake the fruit of the good seeds, the wheat. And so we need to think about our lives as the field in which we are called to grow and develop in a different way, to set the weeds aside and to let the good wheat grow to fruition. I think a lot of us these days are very discouraged. <clears throat> we feel heavily beset um, by just the normal activities of daily living, um, the losses that we suffer through life and death, the illnesses that always prevail um, and are with us. But more pointedly, I think we also feel a great deal of uh, discomfort and anxiety and maybe even depression over the three afflictions of our particular day. First, the ravages of COVID-19 
138,000 people in America have died and around the world, even more. Many people are suffering and are still suffering and the virus does not seem to be um, abated by our efforts to date. The economic dislocation and the grinding poverty that beset so many Americans even before COVID-19 has now been expanded. And our whole economy is uh, suffering under the uh, required uh, quarantining and separation and loss of economic activity. So we're very anxious about our money and our welfare and our ability to provide for our families and our security and retirement. Very deeply anxious. And then, of course, the uh, rising understanding within America of the uh, primordial issue of race and racism in our country, the great ravages of a 400-year history of white supremacy, um, and the need to create a truly just and equal society. So it's very easy for us in these days to feel that um, things are so bad they will never be resolved. You may know that the, um, the Chinese uh, symbol for a crisis uh, is also the symbol for an opportunity. This crisis is an opportunity for our nation um, to deal with some of the deep underlying issues in our lives and our life together and to make things right. The greatest uh, crisis in the early, the first third of the 20th century, of course, was the Great Depression, which became an opportunity for America to remake itself into a more just and equitable society uh, through all of the uh, provisions uh, that came out of that crisis. In the same way, the crisis of this time can be a moment in which our national, our body politic, the way we govern and understand ourselves, can be transformed and set on a path to provide for justice and equity, in fact, not in theory, but in fact, uh, for all people. The great upswelling when uh, three quarters of American people now recognize and affirm in recent polling that race is a central problem in America. Up 25% uh, in just five years. This deep understanding uh, that the need to create a truly equitable society, a truly free and equal society is paramount and is in the interests of all of us. So this moment uh, can be deeply troubling, and I understand that, and I feel it. But I also think the antidote to that fear and anxiety is a hope for the future. Not an empty-minded optimism, but a hope that we will pull together. And when we respond to God's mandate of love and hope, when we see in each other, not enemies, we have to stop seeing each other as enemies. We can disagree, as my grandmother used to say, we can disagree without being disagreeable, right? Each one of us is a beloved child of God. We must learn to see that in each of us is the presence and the light of God. This is a new way of growing, not to see enemies, but to see fellow and fellow sisters and brothers of God. This is a week in which uh, we're deeply attuned to 
the remarkable life of John Lewis. One of the greatest leaders in the movement for civil rights, for which are, of course, human rights, in the mid to late 20th century, and for 30-something years, a congressman, member of Congress from Atlanta, uh, who survived and suffered terrible beatings and near drownings um, in his life as he stood as a great champion for nonviolence. He was a student of uh, and friend, confidant, and collaborator with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Both of them were uh, devoted uh, students of Gandhi, um, like C.J. Vivian, his other colleague who uh, died this past week, one of the great marshals of uh, nonviolent resistance in America. But John Lewis articulated a hope, even in the midst of all the great suffering of his life. He embodied a trust that in working together, we can make things right. When we see something that's wrong, we have to speak up, not just speak up and speak out, but he said we must act. And I'd like to share with you an epigraph uh, from John Lewis, which I think is a, a wonderful um, an epigram, an epigram from uh, John Lewis, um, a, a wonderful message to us uh, today and always. Lewis said, you are a light. You are the light. Never let anyone, any person, or any force dampen, dim, or diminish your light. You are a light. You are the light. Don't let the forces arrayed against us dampen or diminish or dim our light. He then goes on to say, study the path of others, as he did with Gandhi. Study the path of others to make your way clear and more abundant. To recognize that we are engaged in a journey in which our forebears have gone before us to show a way of justice and of peace, of equity, and of love. John Lewis liked to say that I don't have any enemies. I only have people who I love. And we will act with nonviolence because if we are wrong, we will have hurt no one but ourselves. This is actually C.J. Vivian said, if we hurt anyone, without, if, we, if, if we practice nonviolence, we will hurt no one in our cause. But if we are right, others will join us in the pursuit of justice. So let's not become overly discouraged and uh, believing that the end is near. But let us believe that in the future as we work together, we may truly accomplish God's will for the world, God's justice and its fruit, which is peace. Justice, then peace. For you are the light 
of the world. Amen.